ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Welcome. I'm Dr. Michael Egner. I am a professor of neurosurgery at Stony Brook on Long Island, and I've been practicing and teaching neurosurgery for about 40 years. I'm a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute, and I have the great pleasure today of uh, having as our guest Dr. Howard Glicksman. Howard has written, uh, along with his colleague Steve Lofman, a wonderful book called Your Designed Body. It is a fascinating book. And Howard, could you tell us just a little bit about yourself and about the book? And uh, we can discuss some of the fascinating points that you raise in the book. Yes, thanks, Mike. I'm a general practitioner. I've been in practice for about 40 years. Uh, first 20 years or so, I had a hospital office practice. And then in the last 20 years, I've been a hospice physician, and particularly in the last five or six years, concentrating on seeing patients with uh, problems that may be recoverable, actually sort of trying to find patients in hospice that are sort of falling through the cracks and we can try to get them better and have a specialty in heart failure and fluid overload. I've been able to solve some of their problems. The book itself, uh, Your Design Body, basically is about you and any you know anyone else who has a body. It, it, it basically looks at all the organ systems of the body, shows how they work, and then uh, talks about the built-in engineering to make that work. And then finally, ask the question, well, where did all this come from? So it looks at causation as, as a sort of a critique of neo-Darwinism and, and then uh, presents a, a positive theory of uh, biological design and then leaves it up to the reader to decide for themselves uh, where they, you know, what they think about that. Uh, so that's, that's what the book's about. Great. You mentioned uh, what you call cascading problems. What are cascading problems in, in, in this uh, design question? Yeah, so um, I think a good example of cascading problems, uh, and I know this is Steve's favorite one. You know, we we talk about how oxygen. I think everyone can identify. You hold your breath, and and uh, you need to breathe because your oxygen level starts to drop and carbon dioxide level starts to rise. So we all know that if we don't breathe in new air, bring in new supply of oxygen within three or four minutes, we die. That's because the body can't store oxygen, but it can store water and, and it can store sugar so you can live longer without those. And so, you know, the, the respiratory system, we have a respiratory system that allows you to bring in uh, air and oxygen and, and then put it in the bloodstream. And of course, the just very quickly, it's an irreducibly complex system. You have all the parts of the lungs, you have the control system, and you have the respiratory center in the brain that monitors the oxygen, carbon dioxide, and, uh, you know, you have to have enough oxygen to do, you know, what you want to do. And the lungs have to function properly. So, you know, obviously an example, a person who's been a smoker has emphysema, they're going to have problems moving around and staying active, right? So that speaks to the fact that although you've got all the parts, like would be irreducibly complex, they have to function properly to allow for survival. But that only, if you think about it though, if you have all that working properly, so the oxygen, you've got the oxygen from outside your body, and it's come into your lungs, it's come into the what's called the alveoli, which is sort of the organ of the lung, and that enters into the bloodstream. But you know, the, the point here is that it's a cascading problem because the, what you're trying to do is get oxygen to all your cells. And you've now come up against another problem, okay? And the problem here is that oxygen doesn't dissolve very well in blood. In fact, only about three milliliters per liter of oxygen per liter of blood. That's not enough to even give you enough oxygen to all your cells just when you're sitting around doing nothing, never mind being active. What you need is you need a, a better way to, to transport oxygen in the blood, right? And the answer, the solution to that problem is a, is a complicated protein called hemoglobin. 
and it's made of you know two alpha and beta chains with with basically four atoms of iron in it, and it's the iron that's in the hemoglobin that grabs the oxygen. So now you've got another problem. We've talked about the oxygen getting into the body, but now it's a cascading problem because the oxygen has come in, but where, where's it going to go after that? that? That doesn't solve your problem. It's got to get into the blood, and the blood has to have enough hemoglobin, but the hemoglobin is made in the red blood cells in your bone marrow. So you've got another issue. So you've got red cells in the bone marrow. They're, they've differentiated so that they know to make hemoglobin. And once they mature and they've made enough hemoglobin, then they get released from the bone marrow into the blood. All right. But, but the thing is that you need to have enough oxygen carrying capacity. You have to, you know, so you have to have enough hemoglobin. So how do you control hemoglobin? All right. Just like we're saying, we're controlling your breathing. So you got a respiratory center in the brain and monitors the oxygen and carbon dioxide. Well, you need something in the body to control the hemoglobin. What controls that? Because if you don't have enough, you're not going to be able to carry enough oxygen. And, and the other thing to keep in mind here is having too much hemoglobin or too many red cells isn't good either, because don't forget the red blood cells, they have physicality. I mean, they take up space. And if you've got a lot of, too many red cells in your blood, it's going to start to sludge. So how does the body solve that problem? So it ends up that you have specialized kidney cells that detect the oxygen level in the blood, and they send out a hormone called erythropoietin or EPO, erythropoietin. And that goes in the blood and attaches to the stem cells in the bone marrow. And they have receptors, specific receptors, because the erythropoietin can just do what it wants. It has to attach to those receptors. And that turns on those stem cells uh, to become red blood cells and to, and to form hemoglobin. So that's how, you know, if the, if the oxygen level starts to go down, the kidney cells send out more erythropoietin. If the, if the oxygen is going back up, they reduce how much erythropoietin they make. So this is how you control the amount of red cells and hemoglobin in your body. But then, of course, you got another problem, okay, because we said that you need iron, right, in the red blood cell, in the, in the hemoglobin for, to work properly. And the problem is that you, then you have to get iron into the body. Where is that going to come from? And that comes through the GI system, has to be absorbed through the duodenum, through the intestinal cells there. Uh, but the problem, of course, is not having enough isn't good, but iron can be very toxic to the body. If you have too much iron, that can uh, cause organ damage. So you have to be able to control that, all right? And it ends up that the liver monitors the iron level and it sends out a hormone called hepcidin. The hepcidin goes to the duodenum and it tells it how much iron to take into the body. And so that that monitors, keeps that under control. And then finally, of course, iron can't sort of just be free, go float around free of the blood. So it actually needs a transport protein called transferrin. And the liver makes that. Of course, how does the liver know how much to make? You know, it makes the transferrin, the iron attaches to transferrin. And then the next question is, well, how are we going to make sure that the, that the cells in the body that need the most iron, which is basically your red blood, developing red blood cells, how are they going to do pick up all that iron rather than say your brain cells, or your eye cells, or the cells in your kidney. Well, it ends up that these developing red blood cells in the bone marrow have a very high concentration of transferrin receptors. So when the transferrin comes with the iron, there's a high concentration there in those cells and the transferrin automatically attaches there and it gives the iron to those developing red blood cells. So, you know, so, so now we've got to the point where, okay, we've solved the problem the blood having enough oxygen carrying capacity, but we still we still have another problem because we're trying to get enough oxygen to all the cells in the body, right? So the blood has enough oxygen. Now what? Well, you need the cardiovascular system, right? You need the heart and the blood vessels, and they have to send enough blood to everywhere where they need to be, right? So so you know the brain is always getting a certain amount of blood, but what happens if you get very active, right? You start to run around. And, uh, you know, obviously your muscles and your heart 
need more of that blood supply. So you have what's called the autonomic nervous system that sends out certain signals that make sure that most of that blood, as the heart starts to beat faster and send out more blood, that most of that blood ends up going to the muscle and to the heart. And also the tissues that are actually being used, like the muscles, the metabolism there changes the chemical milieu. And that also turns on those arterioles to open up as well. So so you got all these factors. Just because you breathe in oxygen doesn't necessarily mean it's going to get all to all the cells. You need to have red blood cells that make hemoglobin. They have to be controlled. You have to have iron for the hemoglobin, and that has to be controlled. And then you need the cardiovascular system to do the job. And, and this is the reason why you need coherent interdependent systems, because they're all dependent on each other. In fact, if you think about it, they're actually auto-dependent as well, what we call causal circularity, right? All the cells all the cells that are involved in bringing in oxygen or controlling oxygen need oxygen themselves, right? All the cells that send blood throughout the body, they need blood too. They need a blood supply as well. So they're all interconnected with each other. What you're describing here is fascinating. Some of the theorists in intelligent design, for example, William Dembski, have written a great deal about specified complexity uh, in living things. That is that there are there are biological molecules and uh, and biological processes that are very complex and that have a clear specified purpose. And it is very difficult to um, create specified complexity with the Darwinian process of random heritable variation and natural selection. Specified complexity is, a, is really characteristic of an intelligently designed system. It would seem to me that what you and Steve are describing here is even beyond specified complexity. It's, 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 it's as if you're describing coherent, interdependent specified complexity. So the individual organs and the molecules that make up the organs in the human body are themselves complex and they're complex in a specified way. But in addition to that, there's a coherent interdependence of all of these different organs and systems, almost like an orchestra making all these musical instruments work in just the right way. And that really speaks very clearly to uh, intelligent design. Yeah, I think the other part about this is, that, you know, and it's sort of anthropomorphizing, but they seem to all know what they're supposed to do, you know? Right, right. <laughs> so, right. you know, the all these, uh, you got the sensors and then it's, it's like, a you know, all the systems are basically like your thermostat on your uh, heating and air conditioning system. You know, it's set at a certain thing. And when they, when the temperature goes up, you know, it, it turns on the air conditioning, it goes down and turns on the heat. And in between it's, it's copacetic, it's fine. But, but mo a lot of the systems are basically like that. And they, and, and they're all set. It's like I said, it's Goldilocks, basically. It's Goldilocks principles applied here because they all have to stay within a certain range. I mean, if you think about it, you all had lab work. Everyone's had lab work done. Think about this. You go and look at the lab work and it gives you the normal range. Okay. Well, what does that mean? That's fine tuning, right? If your hemoglobin basically, you know, for a man is maybe 13 and a half to, to 16, for a woman, maybe 12 to 14. If you really think about it, though, because we know how much oxygen every gram of hemoglobin can carry, we know that the, the minimum amount of hemoglobin for you to, to survive is about four grams per deciliter because of how much oxygen, you need 250 milliliters per minute of oxygen at, at total rest. So while we're sitting here, you know, we're probably using a little more because we're talking, but basically at rest, you use a certain amount. If you walk, you use a certain amount. If you want to be very active, you use a certain amount. 
And, and so you need a certain amount of hemoglobin to be able to do that. They're all interconnected. We just happen to have the right amount. And when you don't have the right amount, then that's when the doctor sees the patient and they start having they're complaining of shortness of breath or fatigue and weakness, et cetera. So uh, that's one of the differentials uh, that we think of when someone comes in and they're tired and short of breath. You know, there could be other reasons too, but that gives the people, the audience, an idea of to, to start thinking like doctors and engineers. You know, well, it's uh, very interesting that I my my own research is on blood flow and spinal fluid flow in the brain, and specifically um, how the brain and the cranium deal with the pulsations coming out of the heart because the heart is a pulse pump and they're, they're pretty strong pulses and the brain has to uh, buffer these pulses to prevent damage. And when I started studying this problem back about 20 years ago, I, I couldn't really get much out of the physiology textbooks that I was uh, that I was reading. So I turned to engineering textbooks and I found very clear answers in engineered systems for how the dynamics of pulsatility work inside the brain. And my library now in, in, in my office is probably uh, 80% engineering books rather than physiology books. Uh, so there's a great deal that one can learn about the way the body works by um, inferring that engineering principles govern it. So uh, I, I agree very strongly with, uh, with uh, what you're saying. I think the thing you point out about the pulsatile nature of the blood going into the brain and that you can cause damage is to remember, because I think people forget this, that there's a physicality, there's a limit to, this is tissue, okay? This is physical, it's made of matter, okay? It's not just something in our you know, mind that we're making up. That's the reason why, you know, so, so if there's too much stress on those brain cells from that pulsatile movement, you know, you may have damage. It's just like if you have too much light in the back of your eye, you can actually damage your retina because there's too many UV, you know, it's too much, too much um, energy. Those cells can be damaged because of that. So there, there are some limitations and this applies everywhere in, in, in all the organs of the body. And, and the, your, what you're mentioning is, is a classic example. People need to remember that. It's never really brought up in these discussions. That's why engineering, particularly to me, material science really can add so much uh, more to what we do, especially when we look at connective tissue. And I'm sure you have that in the brain, all the different, uh, the astrocytes and glial tissue and, you know, how it holds, how the brain is held in there, you know, things that we don't really think about. Thank you, uh, Howard, for uh, this fascinating discussion. Again, Howard's uh, book, along with his co-author, Steve Lofman, is Your Design Body. Uh, it's a wonderful and fascinating book. Uh, and uh, anyone who's interested in human uh, physiology or in the question of intelligent design uh, would do well to read it. And there's a website that yourdesignbody.com. And uh, thank you again, Howard. Uh, it's been wonderful to talk to you. Thank you very much, Mike. It's been great to be here. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.